Hello, and welcome to Stuff We Say Flashback, Episode 4. I'm Jamie, and a few years back, I played a really lovely little indie game for the Switch called Miles and Kilo. It really reminded me a lot of the Adventure Island games, in all the best ways. So, I sat down with one of the folks behind this title, Mick Waits, and interviewed him about what it's like to be an indie dev and working in indie development. So, stay tuned as we talk about, in this few years old podcast episode, about Miles and Kilo and game development. Welcome everyone back to the Stuff We Say podcast. Joining me today is Mick Waits. Uh, hi there. <laughs> from Four Horses, uh, talking about indie games, indie game development, and honestly, uh, one of my new favorite Switch indie titles. So uh, I guess just to start off, why don't you uh, tell everyone about yourself a little bit, Mick? Okay. Um, right. So I'm uh, Mick Waits, obviously. I'm based in the UK. Um, I was born back in the early 70s, so I've grown up with... Uh, video games as they've, as they've gone through pretty much every generation. Um, and I've always been a fan of playing them and uh, decided to start trying to make them, really, when I was about 11 years old. Uh, we had a c computer back in those days. Your home computers had built-in programming languages, and uh, I, I just used to type in other people's programs and then sort of try and work out how they worked. Um, I don't think I ever really thought I'd get a job making actual games that other people would play. Um, but um, that's I guess that's where I am now. It's great being able to get games out on consoles and, and get them on sale worldwide and, and get feedback from people who are playing them and loving them. Awesome. And out of curiosity, and this is slightly off topic already, but you said computer. Like, Are we talking like a C64 or a Spectrum or uh, out of curiosity? Yeah, for me it was the Acorn Electron, which I don't think is particularly widely known outside the UK. Uh, that, that was based um, off uh, the BBC machines, yeah? Yeah, the BBC Micro. There's a, there's a brilliant documentary called Micro Men that's well worth watching about the fight between Acorn and Sinclair for who got the rights to make a machine with the BBC branding on it. Uh, Acorn won, and the world wants to be grateful that they did because... I, they they basically designed the arm chip, which is in just about every single device you probably own in your house, probably even in the uh, door handles. They're that prolific, <laughs> they're absolutely everywhere. Um, but yeah, the the Acorn Electron it was it was like, let's get a BBC Micro that's already probably the least powerful of the machines out at the time, and take everything out of it that's good and sell it cheaper. And that's what I had. The Acorn Electron. It's uh, not a very good machine, but but I it was a it. start. <laughs> Indeed, it was. It was. Um, some good games came from there. Some that uh, certainly inspired me. My one of my favourite games from the Acorn Electron days was called Repton, which was very similar to Boulder Dash, and that inspired my first game that I got published, uh, that I developed entirely myself, which was uh, Digger Dan. Uh, in fact, Digger Dan actually started out life as a remake of Repton, but um, obviously I couldn't publish it because I didn't have the rights to that. So I, I did some different mechanics, changed the levels, changed the graphics, and uh, Digger Dan was born. So out of curiosity, when when did you personally decide to take the plunge into game development yourself? You know, deciding that this is something not only that I enjoy, but something that I think I could do and actually, you know, sell, you know, my creations on uh, various consoles. 
Um, that final sort of decision, um, certainly to self-publish, was was just about three years ago now. Um, but prior to that, it was just around the turn of the millennium that actually got my first job in video game development. But it was actually as a tester. And um, I'd sort of applied for the job, not thinking I was going to get it. I don't know why. I, I still, to, to me, the idea of working in actually making video games was just a fantasy. It was never really going to happen. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd applied to the, I'd applied for a job as a tester just to prove one of my friends wrong, who said you could get a job in the industry. Um, so whilst I was working at that company, I, I sort of tried to take on board what people were doing programming wise and, and be inspired by that and driven to, uh, to do the same thing, but I actually ended up going into project management um, from testing for a while, and that was just an awful job. Never, really? never again do I want to do. Oh, oh, really? If was. it's okay to ask, which company? Uh, they're now long dead, so it's fine to say. You probably never heard of them. They were called Runecraft. I've heard of them. Um, they were based in the uh, right in the heart of England, um, and. They didn't particularly have any big titles. They 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 worked on a Spec Ops game back on the PlayStation, which I'm not sure if that's the same franchise essentially as the Spec Ops games that are around now. Um, it may have grown into that, but certainly not developed by uh, RuneCraft or anyone who was involved in that. The other biggest title was Matt Hoffman's Pro BMX on uh, on PlayStation, which obviously was taking the existing work from from Tony Hawk's and. Uh, well, just swapping out the skateboard for a bike because <laughs> it's that easy. <laughs> um, but other than that, we worked on quite a lot of... I mean, it was all work for hire for publishers back in those days, and that's what made the project management so awful because the, the people at the top would sign any contract they could get the mitts on, promising absolutely anything regardless of how possible it was. And then uh, the project managers were left basically answering the phone and apologizing to the publisher on a daily basis for why we were late. Um, but yeah, that, never again. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, how much of a gap was there between there and then either getting back into another part of the industry or even uh, indie developing? Um, well, like I said, that, that I started that around the year 2000. Um, I... I I was made redundant from that job due to the company shutting down. And then after a brief time working in a warehouse just to bring the money in, I then got a job back in a company that sort of formed from the ashes of RuneCraft. Uh, and I could see that was going to be short-lived as well. So I jumped ship before that company was closed down and decided that the games industry wasn't for me. It was just too brutal. We we were hit hard quite, quite hard financially when those companies shut. So... Um, I ended up taking a temporary job that lasted three years, um, just simply driving other people's cars around the country, which was quite a nice job and quite well paid given uh, given how easy and stress-free it was. And I spent half my time being driven to where I needed to be. So we just, the four of us in the back of the car would all be playing Mario Kart on the DS multiplayer. Um, I'd be winning, of course. And, uh, <laughs> Same. Now, we, I, I looked at the stats at one point. We'd had 10,000 races and won 9,000 of them. So, yeah, I was definitely better than my colleagues at that one. Um, so 
so yeah, I, I was out of the industry for a while, and then uh, I had a bit of a near miss on the roads with a large wagon, and realised that it possibly wasn't the safest job to be doing. And at that time, my son was born, so the thought of being around for him sort of appealed. So I looked to get back into video game development. Again, I worked with a company that then shut down after three years, uh, moved around a little bit until we moved back up to the northeast, which is where my wife's family's from. And uh, at that time, I'd developed Digger Dan for DS, and DSiWare was just about to come into the scene. So I, I was looking for a publisher to get that published on my behalf. I managed to find one. They they published it. Everything was great. Uh, and then they they essentially offered me a job. And as we were looking to move up here, that was absolutely perfect. So I went and worked for them for a little while. Whilst I was there, got access to 3DS gear, which is sat right in front of me. Um, and made a 3DS version because as as nice as the DSiWare was, I felt that the market was somewhat limited to people who'd actually got the correct hardware because obviously it didn't work on a normal DS. Uh, and then of those who'd gone bothered to fight with the eShop to actually try and find games and buy them because Nintendo didn't make it easy to buy downloadable games in that generation. Um, so I thought the 3DS was going to be a much better fit. Plus I wanted to have a little play with the stereoscopic 3D effect. So I made the 3DS version, but my the company I was working for weren't that interested in publishing it. I'm fully sure why, but to be honest, I'm glad they didn't now because uh, as a result, I set up Four Horses just to publish it. And now, out of curiosity, why the name Four Horses? <laughs> um, it's it's from a only mildly inappropriate story. My grandfather used to say it's um, it's it's. Someone had someone had mentioned something about four horses, and uh, the person who was who heard it had misheard what they'd said, uh, and it used to make my granddad chuckle. So it, I thought it'd just be a nice tribute to him. It was going to be that or uh, the phrase "no more magic," which I quite liked as well. But um, I can imagine what the logo would have been for that. But yeah, we we went with four horses. Um, there's no connection to any apocalypse or anything. In fact, it wasn't until quite some time after the company was set up and I was just Googling things just to uh, find reviews of Kid Trip and the like. And the, the, there's all these four horses of the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse keep coming up. And I'm like, I never thought of that. Oh, I mean, now you can make a game based off the apocalypse now, you know? Well, potentially, yeah. Yeah, but it's got to be in a retro style. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess first one was Digger Dan. You said no, very much kind of a Boulder Dash esque uh, inspiration. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, it's still available on the DSI where I think the I didn't update the DSI version at all. Yeah, because I wasn't published. That's right. But um, I did add an extra twenty five levels to the three DS one, um, which uh, which was quite good. Um, because particularly because I designed those myself, the original levels were designed were outsourced to a designer. Because I don't, I didn't particularly class myself as as a designer at that stage, but as I'm doing it more and more, I think I'm I, I'm getting better at it. Although I still, when it comes to level design, I still tend to do what uh, a lot of newbies do, which is design everything absolutely as difficult as anything. Because by then, you understand the game mechanics so well, so it's really easy to design difficult levels because you, they're not difficult to you. Um, 
about what you don't what's really hard to do is he's designed the easier ones but yeah so yeah digger down was the first game uh and then after that uh there was another between that and kid trip right no, no. Uh, yes yes there was technically um star ghost might be the one you're thinking of mm-hmm. i think that's it um yeah we we got kid trip published in japan um by rainy frog and they asked me if I'd do them a favor and do them a quick port of a Unity game, which sort of stupidly I said yes to because I'd never touched Unity before in my life. But I thought, well, how hard can it be? Um, and I, I I don't regret doing it, and I sort of do regret doing it because it sort of added a couple of months onto Kid Trip getting released on the Switch. And I think I, I think the eShop just got that little bit too saturated by the time kid trip came out in november if i could have had it out in sort of september it would have i think it would have been even better for us um but on the other hand you know uh star ghost paid some bills uh paid for a holiday which was nice so i don't regret it in that sense but yeah kid trip was already out on 3ds by the time we did star ghost and so, so- uh, even though you know I've played it, and uh, I actually uh, at the making of this podcast I actually did a Miles and Kilo review, uh, which I recorded just the other day. Uh, t- can you give everyone kind of the gist and uh, I guess story behind Kid Trip? Like, well, <laughs> the, the story is very light. Um, I'm I'm not a huge fan of stories in games. Sometimes I think they can be quite off-putting. Um, but the, the yeah, the overview is. Uh, Miles is flying along in his plane one day, suffers an unfortunate accident when he flies into a giraffe, as happens to most pilots at some point in their <laughs> lives, uh, ends up crash landing on the island and all the wildlife are not too happy in being there, so they basically chase him. So that's the intro. It's over in a few seconds as the game starts up, and from that point onwards, Miles doesn't stop running pretty much. And you just have to get from the left-hand side of each level to the right-hand side of the level as fast as you can and uh, and try and escape from the wildlife who are chasing you. Um, it's it, So many people keep saying it's an endless runner. It's not. It's an auto-runner. Obviously, it's level-based. There's a fixed number of levels. Um, in addition to running and jumping and bouncing off enemies, you can control your speed, either speeding up or slowing down, depending on what you've got the default movement speed to be and you can throw an unlimited number of rocks at the wildlife to knock them out of the way but it's not it's not helpful to just spam the rock button because uh some of the enemies you're gonna have to be using as platforms at some point so if you're already throwing a stone at them you're you're gonna be jumping in the uh water pretty soon but um that's kid trip it's it's short and it's sweet it's highly polished um the original creator guy called mike burns who I keep saying this, I should actually ask him, but I'm fairly sure he was still at school when he was originally developing it. It took him about four years. Um, and it's it's a really, really good quality game for a, for a one-man dev team, which is what it is. He outsourced the music. It's got some fantastic chip music from a guy called Chris Cuckler. Um, but other than that, it's entirely his own work. And he's very proud of it, and he's every right to be. It's a really good quality game. Absolutely, and so like, do do you know what kind of how how long was that in development? Would you say before, because he developed it in Four Horses published, correct? 
Or... Yeah, he developed it on iOS. Um, it, I, I'd say it took him about four years, I think, um, from when he first started it to when he actually got the game published. Um, and he self-published that on iOS. I think I just said that. Um, and, I mean, that was quite a while ago as well. I think that was back 2013 when he first got it published. But it was actually long before that that I'd talked to him about doing a 3DS port. And at the time, he did have another potential publisher in mind who'd said they they were interested in taking it to 3ds because he'd posted a lot of screenshots online and got quite a following and a lot of people wanted him to get this game finished so they could play it because everyone thought it looked fantastic which is how i first started speaking to him um and then it was years later um in my i i have a day job by the way i four horses isn't a full-time venture for me i'm a solo developer um but as yet, I'm, I'm not bringing in enough money to do this full time. So I have a day job. And one of my colleagues in my day job just happened to mention Kid Trip uh, just out of the blue that he'd played this game and really liked it. And uh, I, it, it sort of reminded me of its existence. So I, I tracked down Mike again and said, look, what, whatever happened to this 3DS version? Because I've just published a 3DS game and I'm sat with a dev kit and nothing to do with it. Um, and... I, I got the game up and running in, in about four weeks, I think. But it was a case of converting the original code from Apple's favorite Objective-C over to C++ to run on my engine. Got the 3DS version out, and then Nintendo... I think we'd already heard about the Switch by... Had we heard about the Switch? No, it came out a few, just a few months. I can't remember the timing or everything. Yeah, I think we already knew about the Switch by then. Um, so I, I started talking to Nintendo about a Switch version, not really thinking that they'd go for it, but they did. So uh, that took me a week to make because um, it was just a case of converting the, the code that does the drawing of the sprites and the reading of the controller. And then the job was done just about. So out of curiosity with that, what exactly is the process you have to go through to, say, convert an iOS game to a 3DS game, or and then from there, a 3DS game to a Switch game? Well, it, it's all entirely down to the framework that the thing's created with. Now, with the original iOS code for Kid Trip, um, the language structure of, of Objective-C is very similar to C++ because they've both got roots in the same base language, C, and Mike had written all his own rendering code. So it, was, it wasn't heavily reliant on anyone else's code whatsoever. So in some ways, that was quite easy. It was just a case of working out which was the file where essentially the code starts when the game runs, working on that first, changing the code over, getting rid of all the errors and, and filling enough sort of empty shells of the objects that it wants to know about. Um, so that it can at least think it's running, and then going and filling in the empty shells with the code for those so that the menus start playing, the intro starts playing, and so on and so forth. So for that one, it wasn't so bad. Um, for Miles and Kilo, the process was even more simple because he's actually written this in a existing engine mono game, which is available on Switch. So it was simply a case of getting the project set up and getting it running and then just a few little bits to to plug in some um, hardware specific code to deal with controllers all being disconnected and uh the hd rumble the support for vibration in mono games not really there for hd rumble it, it just does vibration rather than anything more fancy um so yeah it, it really depends on on what's 
on what's supporting the thing in the first place. So the engine I use myself that I use for Kid Trip, um, it's just quite a simple at the minute uh, sprite rendering engine. You can draw sprites, draw them at different angles, different sizes, different places of the screen. You can play music, you can play sound effects, you can read the controller and do load and save data. Um, but that's all you need really to get a game up and running. So when it came to then doing the Switch version, all I had to do was write the equivalent code that plays the music, draws the graphics, reads the controller, and, and that was it. It was up and running very, very quickly. And so uh, so Miles and Kilo from, from the get-go was built up with the Switch in mind, correct? Definitely with consoles in mind. I think when he started it, no one knew what the Switch was. Um, I don't think Nintendo had even teased that they got another console on the way then. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely built with console in mind. When when Mike designed Kid Trip, he, I don't think he ever dreamed when he started that he'd be get, seeing the game on a console. So he very much designed it around the platforms that he expected it to be launched on which would be mobile so it was designed for two finger control and uh, uh an auto running um so again the level designs and the mechanics aren't really there to let the character stop moving uh despite people constantly asking can we add that um but with miles and kilo he he definitely designed it i mean he knew at the very least he was gonna try to release it on steam so he was gonna have touchscreen controls for uh, for the phones with auto running and full control for people with control pads on Steam. And again, consoles were definitely there in his mind in this case for, for getting the game released. And it, it plays so well on the Switch, it's so nice. It really does. And I guess kind of going into that, like how much of a gap was there between Miles and Kilo and Kid Trip? Uh, again, about four years, but I don't think he wasn't working on it constantly. I think he put about two years worth of work into Miles and Kilo, but to some degree, he had a lot of the framework there because in some ways, I think Miles and Kilo is the game he would have made out of Kid Trip if he'd have just kept working on Kid Trip forever. But it made sense to get released, get it out there and uh, get some return on the amount of work he'd put into it. Um so Miles and Kilo is very much a refinement of Kid Trip. He, he, there is actually code when I was converting Kid Trip. I did notice there's code for things like being able to wall jump um, that just never made it through into the final version. Uh, and obviously then that made it through into Miles and Kilo. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it was about two years it took. So I guess shifting into Miles and Kilo itself, first things first, Like, how long did that one take to get onto the switch uh up and running uh one day uh, one day <laughs> really it, it was really yeah and, and it wasn't even me that did that that was mike um because he was already familiar with it and i was still working on the aftermath of getting kid trip released and looking at doing the patch and the demo we did a pack i remember what the patch was we did a patch it was definitely more than an icon. Oh, we added HD Rumble video support, although video support is really easy. Um, but yeah, there was, I, I was busy straight away after the launch. You, you just have a period of uh, doing so much that he he decided he'd get on and start Miles and Kilo. Um, and like I said, with it running on an existing engine, it can be... I mean, I was the same with Star Ghost for me. I had the thing, the basic game up and running in a day. 
uh, without even knowing what I was doing with with um, Unity, which is it's quite nice when you can do that. Um, so yeah, it was it was up and running in a day, but there was there was quite a lot of work he wanted to do with it. He was um, he got a lot of feedback from the iOS version and the Steam version. So there are quite a number of differences in the Switch version compared to them. For example, on the original iOS release, in story mode, you couldn't backtrack, you couldn't go and try and improve your score on a level. Um, and he, he sort of made the time attack mode work that way instead. So time attack, you just one attempt at each level to play through, unless you die, in which case, obviously, you restart the level. Um, just to give the players freedom to go back and try and S-rank all the levels, we added some achievements that weren't in the other versions, and one of one of my contributions was to uh, rewrite the text rendering code just to make it look a little bit nicer. Um, but yeah, it was it, getting it over was was a really really quick process. What I would like to do, because uh, we're going to look at moving it to other consoles as well. I'm looking at them right now, um, and when when that's done, if we get Kid Trip done, um, I will have a version of my engine that runs on pretty much every current gen platform that people play games on, except mobile. Uh, and it'd be really nice to develop a game from scratch for it. Cause um, it will simply be a case of right off the bat. It just works on everything without any additional work whatsoever. It will just be there. And I'm looking forward to giving that a try, but uh, I think we're a little way off that just yet. Uh, what, what consoles do you have in mind? Like all three, all of the big three, yeah, all the big three, Vita and Windows Store as well, because Microsoft are basically requiring that. They're uh, they're a bit funny with the concept approval. If your game is not going to feature any exclusive content and not going to release first on their platform, then they they want something from you in return. So we're getting a Windows version as well. But for, as far as I can tell, it's just a case of pushing a button and... That that it's basically gonna be the same build that goes on the Xbox. So it's, it's no skin off my nose for that. So I guess going into Miles and Kilo, it's, uh, I guess it's a sequel to Kid Trip, and it it says yes. And it's, from my nose, you know, it definitely it's almost like an eight bit to sixteen bit jump in the graphical style, which I thought you know was just kind of a nice touch there. I guess like uh, go or at the very least going from like kind of a Commodore sixty four eight bit to like a, a Master System. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair to say. I'm not sure if that was um, if that was Mike's thoughts when he when he created the graphics. That in some ways I I find the smaller, lower res graphics cuter, but um, the more I'm playing Miles and Kilo, particularly on the we've got quite a big screen downstairs, so um, I, Miles and Kilo looks better on a big screen. I think Kid Trip looks better on a small screen. I think that's fair to say. Although Miles and Kilo looks great in handheld mode as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a fair uh, fair assertion. Definitely. It's um, it, yeah, it is like going from one generation to the next. But yeah, um, as you say, it is a sequel to Kid Trip. Um, but we've we've been uh, well for part of the promotion stuff we're going to be doing, we're going to be releasing some character lore uh, at some point, sort of some background info on the different characters in the game. And um, we discussed this previously that uh, because the, if you've played Kid Trip to the end, uh, there's sort of a bit of a cliffhanger ending, sort of. And 
there's no explanation at the start of Miles and Kilo as to what's happened in between. So we're uh, we would quite like to make a game somewhere in the middle, but in a in a different style. Definitely not a fast action platform runner, which both Miles and Kilo and Kid Trip are. So more more exploration, more problem solving. For sure, though. Miles and Kilo in its own right is a bit of a different game and one thing I know is I point this out right where I start off into the review is because you've gone from that endless runner to more of that kind of traditional platforming the way it's done it really reminded me a lot of the Adventure Island games and particularly the first Wonder Boy game were those big inspiration because I right off the bat say that it's you know to me I was like you know this game does kind of for that style of game what Bloodstained did for Castlevania uh, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, that was Mike's always said that's been his inspiration as the Adventure Island games, uh, Donkey Kong Country as well. Um, particularly see that in the uh, in the silhouette level. Um, but yeah, hundred percent Adventure Island, which is why the surfboards in there. You ride the surfboard the same way as in, in Wonder Boy. You ride the skateboard. Um, but yeah, yeah, that they were definitely his inspiration. I, I don't. I should actually dig out Adventure Island because it's not one I've played here. We we got Wonder Boy over here. Um, I was very familiar with that. I really like that game, but uh, I, I never got into Adventure Island myself. So I should really dig it out. Adventure Island's interesting. Uh, I forget what what long story of that, but essentially, the, if you've played the first Wonder Boy, it's exactly the same as Adventure Island one. Yeah, that's that yeah. was the impression I got from from what I've read or spoken to people about. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of weird licensing thing. The 80s were quite, quite a weird time. <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, yeah. But with Star Fox as well, that had a different name over in Europe for a while. Never yeah. understood why. And then there was other weird things too, like I know y- y'all's Contra became Protector and whatnot. Yeah, it did. I, I wonder, I think that might be the Germany thing. That Germany were very sensitive about games with people shooting people. Uh, so you got a lot of people shooting zombies, people shooting dinosaurs, people shooting robots, um, just to sort of get around their sensitivities. So yeah, I wonder if that was I wonder if that was down to that. Nintendo Europe's based in Germany as well, so they're they're very much in the heart of uh, that sensitive region. Although I think they're less sensitive now. For sure, and I, I guess going back into Miles and Kilo. It's really interesting, though, seeing something actually doing that Adventure Island style because there's so many retro throwback indie games like that. But, it, you know, it's refreshing to see something that's not being, you know, a Mario-esque game or a Zelda-esque or a a, uh, Sonic-esque, you know. It's nice to see something that's a bit more original, you know, which, you know, I really appreciated that. Good, good. It's yeah, it's it's hard. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things I said when I set up Four Horses was that I wanted to make games very much in a retro style, but without the restrictions that that were imposed on the hardware back back in those days. Um, and and I keep looking around at other games now back from that I used to love for uh, for inspiration, and there's there's. It's really hard to get something that doesn't seem to have already been done. Um, but yeah, Miles and Kilo. It's, it's, it is very much a game of the 80s and 90s. It's just pure fun. Uh, 
there's no other way really to describe it. It's, it's just, it's fun to play. It's what a game should be. You lose a life, you're straight back in. Well, there aren't lives anyway, but you, you know, you kill a character, you're straight back into the game. There's no waiting, there's no loading screens. It's, it's just all instant. And out of curiosity, I thought, thought I really liked that life concept. You know, uh, it's I've, I've been noticing some games where it's like the idea of death just being kind of a slap on the wrist, you know, uh, where you die, but the stage is short and you just go back to the beginning. Uh, what Was that kind of the idea y'all were going into the game with, where it's like, if you die, don't make it like this horrible punishing thing? Yeah, the... Um... The life system was in Kid Trip just as a way to stop you accumulating so many coins, really, because your coins were going to be some form of um, some form of score at the end of the game just for sort of ranking. And it was decided that we should... Well, Mike decided, because obviously he, was, he designed it, um, that he should use lives as a way to sort of essentially... Losing the coins as a way of punishing you for, for losing lives... But I think he, he regretted that decision. So when it came to make Kid Trip, he just he got rid of the lives altogether. Um, still kept the coins as a way of score, though. And uh, and instead, it just when you when you do lose a life, it resets you back to. It's like there's a checkpoint at the start of the level, essentially. So when you lose a life, you go back to to uh, however long it's taken you to get that far into the game and resets the your coin count to what you had at the start of that um, level and your score as well, because there is a natural score in this one as well which there wasn't in Kid Trip. So yeah, it was a very conscious decision to not have lives and not punish you. It's just keep trying the level till you succeed and don't worry about it. Nice. And now I guess going from that, what what would you say what would you say really separates Miles and Kilo from other indies? Like what would you say what would you say is your favorite part about it? Um that's that's an interesting one. There's, I mean, there's some really really good indie games about. I, I my favourite aspect of the game that's not so much about the game is that it's a one man creation. I think it it really shines. That the level of quality really shines for a for a one man game. Um, and I think people would be surprised if they didn't know that, having played it, if they then were told that this was actually created by a single person. Um, but I, uh, my favourite aspect of it is is what I said before is that it is just pure fun. There's no, there's none of the things that I'm starting to really hate about modern games, which is DLC and crowdfunding. I'm, I'm getting very tired of crowdfunded <laughs> games. Um, there's there's no always online requirement it's just you load the game up it loads very quickly uh, it's fast it's smooth and your gameplay sessions are the same they're fast and smooth you're not you're not stuck waiting for the next level to load it's just constant it's in your face i'd, I'd say that's my favorite aspect because it it does take me back to how games were when they were on cartridge Back in the day when it was your your Game Boy, your uh, Master System, the the way those cartridges work are, are totally different to modern cartridges. Modern cartridges are just like file systems, and you've got loading times same as everything else. But in those in those days, when the cartridge was in, there was no loading. It was it was uh, it was a different setup, and and that's what I like the most about it. It's, it's fast. And out of curiosity, though, and I guess this is kind of other end of it. 
I've heard people saying there's issues with uh, the Nintendo Switch eShop becoming oversaturated. And, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, like uh, Nintendo recently said that they want to get 20 to 30 new games out on the eShop every week. Do, do you see kind of a Steam-esque problem arising there? And do you think a lot of that is on... An, and do you think that comes down to Nintendo lacking a quality control, Nintendo lacking ability to promote games, or even just the eShop having kind of an archaic design? I, I think I think there's a lot of problems with it. Um, I mean, one problem we suffered is we, because of this 20 to 30, I mean, even before Nintendo said that, there was a week where I counted up, there were 30 releases on the eShop in America. Uh, so, I mean, some of those were full price games, um as well but that that's just a stupid figure that that is quite simply too high um now i can't say i want curation on that i want nintendo to put fewer games on there because uh being one of the tiniest developers i think we'd be one of the first to disappear so um yeah i, I definitely don't want that um but we to to stand out we decided to do a promotion where anyone who bought miles and kilo who didn't already have kid trip would get kid trip free of charge and anyone who had already got kid trip could essentially get the price of kid trip off the price of miles and kilo so they they worked out the same either way because uh, i don't like the idea of people who've already supported us then missing out on on benefits um and looking at the numbers after the promotion of of all the people who bought Miles and Kilo at full price and could have downloaded Kid Trip free, only two fifths did, forty um, percent, and that's simply because they didn't know that they were entitled to it, and they didn't know that because the eShop's not set up to tell them unless they've already got one game and happen to go and look at the other. They then see a badge saying there's a discount. You'd, you'd think there'd be some way to notify them to say there's there's this owner discount set up. You own one game. Hey, look, you can get this. Um, so that that promotion in our in our eyes was a bit of a flop. Um, but discoverability generally on the eShop is really really hard. I mean, realistically, from my point of view. Um, even though Kid Trip sold really well on Switch, we were happy with the sales. It hasn't really sold enough to pay what we should have been paid for its development. If we were doing this as a full-time job, we'd, we'd quite simply be out of business. And Miles and Kilos, it's, so far, has been uh, has been less successful than Kid Trip. So, you know, if if we weren't doing this as, as a hobby, we would be out of business. And it's a shame because I don't think... I'd like to say that I don't think Four Horses is like some of the developers out there. We're not just shoveling out lower quality games as fast as we can to make a quick buck. We're uh, we're we're putting our hearts and souls into these, and we're we're making the best games we can. And I think the end results are very worthwhile. And the feedback we're getting from the reviewers and from from the uh, the public who have played the game, they they agree. They really love them. They think they're great games, but. How do we get that message out there? Now, I'd love to say that I think Nintendo America should be like boosting us and, and tweeting and letting the world know and putting us at the front of the eShop and helping push my business along. But I've no right to expect that, really, because, you know, everyone everyone who publishes the game on the platform should then 
essentially get those rights as well. It's just a little difficult, though, when, when you see them promoting a game that's already had its funding paid for entirely through a Kickstarter campaign, and then it's sold successfully on another platform, and then Nintendo hold it up as a shining beacon, say, look, come come buy a Switch because they've got this game on there. And, and the game that you're struggling to get seen just gets no visibility at all. But I guess that's... Uh, it is down to us, and in an ideal world, I'd have a pot of money aside for doing promotion. Um, but it's not an ideal world. I've got a family, and I've got I've got a mortgage, and I haven't got a lot of money to invest in the business. I don't particularly want to get into debt with the business, so I don't want to risk taking out a loan that I then can't pay off if uh, if my attempts to promote the game are unsuccessful. So it's hard. And if Nintendo do attempt to get 30 releases a week, indie indie releases a week, they they going to find that they, they get releases from, you know, 25 out of 30 of those developers are going to be out of business within a year because realistically, they're just, their games aren't going to sell enough to keep them afloat because there's just too many. Well, and it's funny as well because just looking on it, you know, with my own stuff, I know uh, I, I've, you know, even though I cover mostly retro stuff, I try to cover indie stuff a lot as well because, I mean, the, the channel's just, what, what what do I enjoy, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but I notice like a lot of times uh, when I'm on the eShop, I find stuff like uh, there's this one game called Drone Fight, which is pretty much a terrible Mario Kart clone, but with drones. There's this one that uh, a buddy of mine, a beat 'em ups, actually found, which is called a, it's like Electric Telephone Love, which is like a dating sim, except it was only released in Japanese, but on the US eShop. Yeah, that's just come out this week, hasn't it? Isn't that the three of them or something? It's uh, it's a bit weird that one. Yeah. And it's like, do you think Nintendo's just lacking quality control in that point? In addition to being able to promote games that are getting a high critical acclaim, it's a difficult one because um, should they let developers be in a situation where they've put their hearts and souls into a game and then they take them to them and then Nintendo then go, well, we don't want this actually after all because arbitrarily someone somewhere has decided it's not good enough. I mean, Miles and Kilo, um, we've had a review where someone scored it 9.75 out of 10, which absolutely blew me away. Uh, um, and we've had a review where someone was giving it zero. There's, you know, of all our reviews, there's one review absolutely hated it what if i'd sent it off to nintendo for their curation process and the person who who tested it said zero you know if we got the zero person the game would never be out i mean i they, they need to do something i'm just i don't know what that something is i'm, I'm glad i'm not in their shoes I'm, I'm not a huge fan of curation when i think about it but on the other hand i do also see that it, right and there's a part of me would love to see more visible but but then who am i to judge right but uh, i try to play devil's advocate all the time no for sure and well i i feel like you know just looking at the e-shop right now though i feel like I don't know. I remember back when they'd put like a seal of quality in each game, you know, or even if it was a bad game, you know, at the very least you can guarantee that A, it will start up properly and B, that it's going to be completely in English. 
yeah, yeah, that you <laughs> you would think that'd be a basic, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I was just I was just discussing with a colleague at work today. Was talking about um, Captain Toad, and I, clearly their their standards have slipped in their own games if they can if they can do a port of the Wii U game and not even notice that the animation for for when you're scanning amiibos broken and it sort of does a an effect from the wrong side of the um, system because it's 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 based on where the NFC reader is on the uh, Wii U gamepad. But um, yeah, it's a tough one. It really is. I mean, with with the with the Xbox, you have to go through concept approval to get onto the store, and it it felt like a bit of a grind from me, from my point of view. Um, I I mean, I'm not a marketing person, so the the sort of nonsense I had to write to try and big up the game, it's just it's not it's not in my nature to do it. So I don't know. I don't think I'd like it if it was there because I'd always be worried that that as much as I love the games I'm creating that that I'd be wasting my time and yeah it's a tough one I mean Nintendo do have a creation process anyway they they haven't accepted every developer to switch um, I'm aware of a couple of developers out there who published on Wii U and who Nintendo haven't given them access to switch yet and possibly never will. So they, they, they are at least trying to curate it to some degree. Um, but it is a tough one. I want them to do something. What I'd, so what I'd quite like to see is two eShops on the Switch. I'd like to see the uh, get your get your card-based games in download form from this eShop and get your download-only games from this other eShop. Maybe, although, again, maybe that'll hurt because maybe people will only go to the big game shop never look at the little games but i don't know i really don't know we'll just have to see how it goes one thing we've not done yet is we've not had any of the games on sale so other than the original launch offers um and i know a lot of developers basically have their games on sale practically from day one because that's that's when people buy um sales of download games are not something i particularly approve of in principle just again some old-fashioned i don't see why people who go out of the way to buy my games at launch and pay a full price should then get slapped in the first three months later when i put it on sale just to try and claw in a few more a few more sales but unfortunately it's become such a common practice that uh i think there's a, a large number of uh players out there who simply will never buy anything at launch because they'll know they'll get cheaper which to be fair is the smart thing to do um, why why pay twice as much or however much for a game when you know you'll definitely be able to get it at some point in the future cheaper, just hold off actually it's funny you bring that up because you mentioned Captain Toad earlier and they just released that full price release on the Switch so I come down to the States right, and I finally actually picked it up on Wii U because it's uh, $15 down here used compared to $65 yeah. used back in Canada for the Switch Wow. wow. Yeah, which, I mean... That, that's a that's a huge difference. I mean, I know there's conversion rates, so it'd probably be more like 45 American, but but still, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so what would you say is the biggest problem facing indie devs today on the Switch? Is, is it purely the lack... Is it purely the absolute clout of games that you have to sort through on the eShop? 
Uh, yeah, it's simply visibility and discoverability. Um, maybe, maybe some way other than the chart system for for these are the most popular games. Maybe uh, a user rating system, and for people to find the most popular game, did they don't do that, do they? Because they did that on the 3DS for a while. Users could rate the games, and then they, I think Digger Dan managed to appear in the top ten for a brief while, just because the I think three people had rated it and they're all giving it five. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, um, I think maybe something like that. So that at least feedback, I, something else we're probably going to try with Miles and Kilo is get a demo out there because so many of the reviewers had sort of said, yeah, this sort of looked quite cool, but then I played it. Oh my God, I absolutely love it. It's just perfect. So hopefully maybe maybe the players will do that as well if we get a demo out there that might that might translate to more more success for us nice and uh, i guess from from there then you know it's definitely a grind and whatnot but what what advice i guess before we end off what advice would you give to anyone who wants to get into creating their own games especially for uh platforms such as switch Oh, for a platform such as Switch. Um, really, I mean, for me, the, the route to getting access to the platforms and being able to create games uh, to sell directly for Nintendo was was through having worked for other developers. Um, because I, I built a relationship up with Nintendo. I dealt with all the submissions uh, with the company I was in. And they then essentially recognized me um, as someone who'd, who'd been trusted with their secrets, essentially, and, and that they could trust. So the the easiest way, if it's, if it's the best way to describe it, I would say is through working for someone else. And to be honest, you will learn so much working for someone else anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm self-taught as a programmer. Um, I say that, but in reality, in more recent years, because I've worked for other companies and working alongside people, particularly the company I'm at now, we do a system of pair programming where two people work around the same monitor on the same problem, one talking and one typing. Uh, you you pick up new things so so quickly, yeah, new ideas, new ways of working, better techniques. Um, so if you're looking, I would, I would say the best way to if you want to end up as an indie is to try create things on your own in your spare time uh, where you can and use those for practice, but also to show to potential employers to get you into the industry, to show what you can do. And then when you're in there, build up the relationships, build up the experience, get games under your belt that you can then, because part of the application process, it'll be what have you worked on? What platforms has it been published on? The more things you can list across more platforms, they're going to say, yeah, they, this guy knows what they're doing. They're not just someone who's wasting our time. Um, I'd say that would be the best route. And believe in yourself. Uh, I think what's held me back for so long is that... Um, I don't really think I valued myself on my abilities too much. And I, I just saw a life of making video games as being a fantasy. Um, so yeah, believe in yourself sooner than I did anyway. Excellent. And so with that, Mick waits, everyone, uh, where, where can people find you and where can people find out more on miles and kilo and, uh, 
I, I guess actually I do have one last question. What what's the future for Four Horses? What what projects can we look forward to? It's it's very 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 difficult to say. I have talked with another individual who's in a similar situation to Mike Burns, who's got a couple of absolutely fantastic mobile games, and I've said I would quite like to see those games on console. And if I can help in that in any way, I would love to. Um, but in the immediate future, it's getting Miles and Kilo and Kid Trip onto other platforms, get those out and see how they go. Beyond that, I mean, the 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 mobile games might not ever happen. I mean, I've not got an agreement in place there for those at all. Um, but it's, it's difficult to say because it is very, very, very hard putting time into uh, into a small business when you've already got a full-time job. So... I I really don't know nothing certain. I, I don't like to give. It's not so much to give anything. I I don't like to say anything uh, about what I might do if there's any chance of it not coming true. So um, yeah, I just I really can't say. It, it, it could be we create the prequel to Miles and Kilos, the first sequel to Kid Trip. Um, it could be something entirely new or it might be nothing at all there's there's every possibility of any one of those cool cool then uh with that where can people find you where can people find four horses online where can people learn more about miles and kilo and potentially get it uh well potentially get it you can buy it on ios or steam or obviously the uh nintendo switch eShop. um the easiest way to get hold of me is through Twitter. So it's at Four Horses Games. It's F O U R rather than the number. Um, and we're also on the web at fourhorses.co.uk. Um, I don't do Facebook. Uh, so, yeah, those, that's the easiest way, really. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming along for this episode. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good speaking to you. You too. And with that, thank you all very much for watching or listening, depending on what platform you're on. Of course, subscribe to the stuff we to the stuff we say podcast, or if you want to see my own personal videos on stuff we play on YouTube. So with that, thank you all very much for watching. Stay classy, and I'll see all of you next time. <laughs> <laughs>